0: So this is about an astronomer. Astronomy. Who in 1986 had just lost his funding. And Clifford, the out-of-work astronomer, takes a job at the lab where he'd been doing his research. They needed someone to run the lab's computers. He gets settled into his office, this small, unventilated cubicle, when the main guy in charge, this guy named Dave Cleveland, walks in. The lab makes money by renting out computer systems, and Dave comes in holding, like, a report of the usage, essentially a bill.
1: Well, at the end of that particular month, we had seventy-five cents left over in charges that we had no one to bill for, and that was very frustrating because our programs, our accounting programs, were very accurate, and uh, we knew it wasn't a uh, rounding problem or something like that, or arithmetic error. We knew we we didn't have someone to charge the seventy-five cents to, and what happened to that person? Where'd they come from?
0: Where'd they go? And it uh, opened up a whole can of worms. 75 cents. 75 cents. To Cliff, like a big discrepancy in the bill was going to be easy to find, but 75 cents was sort of like a fun challenge for a... Yeah, sure. A
2: it's guy a tiny amount.
0: Yeah. So first, Clifford writes a test program to make sure that the accounting system was working properly, which it was. And then Clifford decides to dive into the list of names, account numbers, and charges. And one of them stands out at him. One account doesn't have an account number associated with it and has used exactly 75 cents worth of computer time. That seems like an obvious place to start. Seems like a pretty obvious place to start. The account's name is Hunter. So Cliff shuts down Hunter's account. Done. Right? We're done here. All right. Hunter's disabled. 75 cents. Nullified. Move on. Write it off. Get that tax break. So the next day, Clifford gets a message from a computer in Maryland codenamed Docmaster. And it turns out that someone had tried to break into Docmaster's system, and the attack was launched from Clifford's lab. And the second day on the job, Clifford is tasked with hunting down the culprit, codenamed "hunter."." The German word for hunter is "jäger," which is also this like small bird with this really distinct predatory behavior known for intruding on other birds and lurking around a nest where it's not welcome and launching these little attacks. Sounds appropriate? So this is that story, the story of the three years that followed, which saw this sort of mild-mannered astronomer embarking on one of the first cases of cyber forensics, looking for this new type of criminal.
3: A hacker, sneaking into military computers, stealing secrets. As a scientist, it was bewildering. But in the end, it was science that showed the way out. Let me tell you what happened.
0: This is the Jaeger, here on Hacked.
3: used to be that computers were isolated big computer here would solve one problem this computer would solve another now though we share data from one scientist to another that means we need to network our computers we need to send messages from one system to another yet to another those computer networks from communities from neighborhoods where one system sends information to another and it's not just the computers that form the communities the people using them are in one large neighborhood as well our networks are like a new kind of highway system once you get on a network you can travel around the world all you have to do is find a computer's network address and then call it up you type in your account name and then your password password's usually not displayed to keep it secure from somebody looking over your shoulder if you're legitimate it invites you in you can even dial up a network on a telephone line with your home computer it all works great until somebody a hacker tries to break in where he doesn't belong
0: that's the world we live in now <laughs> so a lot of listeners might know this story Clifford stole the guy that it's about wrote a very popular book about it called the cuckoo's egg and which they, I've read you've read that Oh, I, read you, it, I read it in like the 90s, though. Then you know this story. Crazy. I don't even remember the book, but I know I read it. Have you seen the PBS doc? No. Oh, it's good. Is it? It's really good. We got a lot of the archival material in this episode from that documentary. Sick. He's given a lot of interviews. So a lot of people have maybe heard this story. I hadn't heard this story. You apparently had... Um, but I just thought it was a pretty fun story, and since I'd never heard it, I figured a lot of people hadn't. I read this book when I was a formulating young cybersecurity nut. There's a lot of
2: bad acting in this movie. I, I can tell. You can tell by the audio takes. So, no offense it, if
0: this makes it into the episode. <laughs> I'm sure you're all great, distinguished actors. They all went on to have established acting careers. The best part about it, though, is that like when we hear from Dave Cleveland, that's actually Dave Cleveland taking part in that PBS documentary. When we hear from a secondary character, that's the real person. Because they were all really excited to be in this movie about this really cool thing they had just done. Cool. So, it's lunch the next day, and Clifford has a lead on the culprit. There's only one user connected from their lab to Doc Master at the time of the break-in.
1: Someone named Spentech. Spentech! Oh, that's impossible. Joe is the professor down at the university here, a well-known computer scientist. He's worked here for years. A lot of us know him. He's not the type of guy to break into a computer. Besides, he's so good, we probably wouldn't have caught him if he had decided to break in.
0: Wow. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) We probably wouldn't have caught him. So Sventech, this real username belonging to a real person who his boss is like certain isn't behind the attack. And Clifford figures out that, oh, a student must have stolen this professor's login. And Cliff decides, I'm just going to teach this little little punk a lesson. He sets a trap. He gets the hacker on the line. I programmed my terminal to beep whenever anyone logged into the lab. And Clifford just watches as hundreds of people connect and disconnect from the lab's computers. And at 12.33 in the afternoon, uh, it beeps for like the hundredth time. And the username Sventech is back online.
3: All he'd left was a terminal number. The line that he'd used to enter the lab's computer system.
0: So Clifford figures out the line that this person is using to log into Sventech. Sure. The terminal ID. So Clifford goes to talk to a guy in the office named Paul Murray. Snaking all through the astronomy lab is just miles and miles of cables. And Paul is the guy who oversaw all that physical infrastructure. And Paul confirmed that the person using Spentex account was coming in from outside the lab, coming in through one of the 50 phone lines running in. And Paul has one of the wildest ideas ever to figure out who it is.
3: Attach a printer to each line and print out every call that came in. Great.
0: So Cliff, liberates 50 printers from around the entire university and he connects one printer to every one of the 50 phone lines coming into the lab and he tells them to print out the login info of every single person from around the world that connects to their laboratory and the next day he comes in and he finds 80 feet of printouts documenting every single login by username he starts by hand parsing through the logins and Clifford discovers that his intruder isn't just passing through the lab's computers. Looking at the actual traffic, he's like actively looking around on their system.
2: Uh, so he wasn't just printing out the login information, he was printing out every console command being executed too?
0: That sounds correct. I'm assuming that is what happened. That's what I would do in a pre-Excel world. Sure. He's opening stuff and he's mucking around in files that the Sventec account shouldn't have even had the ability to look at. So now we have this new question. How is he getting access to this stuff?
3: He not only could read any file in my whole system, but he could change any of them. He could erase any of those files. I love those reads.
0: Man, really bringing it home for me. (laughs) So the question now is how is this fake Spentech done it? How has he gotten this sort of like admin access essentially let's call it super user access or root access so it turns out that the lab had this kind of like crude early mailing system Uh, and essentially if you wanted say i wanted to send you a file i just renamed it your username or i renamed it with your username somewhere in the file and it would just move it over to your account The way that you would transfer files was just by renaming them, and they would jump over to this other person's uh, profile. That sounds like a grotesque security vulnerability. Yeah, it sure does. And the hacker figured it out, and he figured out that you could use that system to send files not to, say, Scott. But to root? But to the systems area that ran the machine, which apparently is called root. (laughs) Uh, and the systems area had this routine also super-duper secure that basically said, hey, just run all of the local maintenance software yeah, every five minutes.
2: So he and transferred in a
0: new maintenance cool. algo that does whatever he needs or a new maintenance you know, commandlet. And it just says, make Ventec the admin. Perfect. Waits five minutes. It runs it. It's,
2: it's called Cron, too, the thing that you're... The scheduling system, just so you're up on the names. Root is the super user and Cron is the the... Uh, scheduled maintenance. Huh. So a cron job. So he added a cron job for something. And that cron job was probably
0: to make him super user. Huh. So the cron job runs? The cron job runs. The cron job runs. He now has this super user access. He uses it to immediately go in and change the accounting records to delete any record that he has over there. Clean up his history. Like all good hackers.
3: A little bit like brushing away your footprints as you walk
0: down a street. And the only way that any of this ever got launched off was because he just like mucked up and forgot to remove one seventy cent usage charge.
2: So the uh, most consoles, so when you terminal into a computer, or the shell that you use, the shell is the thing that you type commands into and they execute on the, the remote computer. Uh, most shells keep a history file of all the commands run. So a common practice is to clean up after yourself, is to delete your history. But if you're really good, you'll actually just manufacture a fake history
0: so it doesn't look suspicious. I don't think this guy was quite that good. Well, he was early days. This is true. None of that stuff had been cooked up yet. Yeah. By the time you're getting into this, there's already books about what this guy was doing. Exactly. Interesting. So Cliff decides the only way he's going to find this guy is if he can do a trace. Uh, And in order to be able to do the trace, he has to identify when the hacker is logging on. And he has to do that without 50 printers and an army of people parsing over every single thing that they print out. He needed to kind of cook up the solution.
2: Well, it's interesting to me because one of the primitive Unix commands is who is and who am I and like who. And who is like a classic command to say who's online right now. So it'd be pretty easy to... Schedule a task to constantly look at who, and when you find the username you're looking for, execute
0: something, be it a notification or what. It's funny you should say that. (laughs) So Clifford decides he's going to invent this alarm system that ends up working out a lot like what you just said. One that's going to alert him every time Sventech, and only Sventech, logs in any time of day. Mm -hmm. Which does sound kind of simple, until you remember that Clifford couldn't connect to the lab from home because home internet. Dial in back then. You used to be able to dial it. You'd have a terminal
2: at home and you'd literally plug your phone into two sockets and it would send audio signals back and forth.
0: Damn. Yeah. Cliff didn't have that, I guess.
2: Well, other people had it to connect to Cliff's lab. So it's weird that the admin didn't have
0: that. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the... It's funny to consider that this is just an out-of-work astronomer doing all of this as part of his like lab maintenance job. Some of the solutions he had to come up with, I sense, are a little bit more rough and tumble than what someone else might have been able to do at the same time. Sure. Yeah. So Clifford and a colleague write what he described as this. It's kind of what you just described. It's a simple program that just monitored all the traffic coming in, filtering for the appearance of a single text phrase. Totally. sentec Spentech. Yeah. He called it in the documentary a logic analyzer, which I feel like. Sure. Yeah. Lo- logic analyzer
2: being there's logic. If username equals Sventech, then do X.
0: Then, yeah, there's logic in there. So then he goes out and he buys a $99 electronic dialer from, like, Radio Shack, which he connects to the system. Which they don't make anymore. No?
2: Not really. I guess I don't really know what you'd use it for. They used to just dial numbers. you program them to dial numbers. They use, like, uh, those telemarketers. Uh, they use them now. They they exist. They're just software now.
0: Huh. Well, he programs it to call a phone in the office.
2: Actually, you remember the Zoom yeah. uh, episode?
0: Auto dialer, same thing. Oh, okay, sure. So he's got the auto dialer and it's looking for the text phrase Spentech. And it's the. auto dialer is looking for the. No, text the, f- logic f- the logic there analyzer. Ah, the logic analyzer. There you go. Okay. And then it's 1986, so he goes out and he buys himself a pager. And strung together, the moment the hacker logs in using Spentex info, the term Svantec appears in the traffic, which trips the logic analyzer, which dials the number of the phone in the lab, which pings his pager. Beautiful. It's pretty sweet.
3: When the hacker called,
0: I was waiting. So when the hacker calls, Clifford's waiting and he runs up to the lab and he does a phone trace. And after like a handful of tries of getting this call, running over to the lab, which I guess he was within running distance of and not making it in time, after a couple of these, it works. And Clifford does the trace, and he's able to follow the traffic. Do you want to guess where it was?
2: Somewhere else in the building.
0: It was an army base.
2: Oh, perfect.
3: Same guy who logged into my computer as Sventec was logging into an army computer under the name Hunter. Same guy who caused that 75-cent accounting imbalance. Once he got into this army computer, I could see him searching their database, looking for military information, looking for stuff about... Their missile plans. Weird stuff was happening here.
0: And so what did Cliff do? He called the army.
3: What you gonna do? Call the army.
0: This movie's too much. It's so good, man. Clifford calls the army after this break.
3: Scientists used the networks to connect to other labs and universities, but you could also connect to a network of unclassified military computers over something called the mill net. That's what the hacker
0: did. So there's this recurring motif in this story where every time Cliff hits a dead end, he goes back to that network traffic, following the hacker as he moves around from system to system, which apparently he could do. I guess he could watch the hacker, maybe because he's using their computer to keep going and do other stuff. The traffic is somehow visible. I don't really understand how that works. He can see this stuff in his world pretty easily. And I think he's somehow seeing this stuff... After the guys come into his network Oh yes. guy's doing. yeah.
2: So if he's passing through his lab Onto other people's computers yes. He
0: would see that yes. yes. Now that we're all summarized and clear So Clifford is watching this hacker Kind of lurk around This time on the millnet
3: When he got onto the millnet He tried to get into one computer after another He didn't do anything fancy He tried standard account names and passwords All new computers are supplied with them You're supposed to replace them, but people forget, even on military computers.
2: Sounds like a common problem that still exists today. Some things truly do not change. That was, what, almost 34 years ago?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The concept of usernames and passwords is brought up as like a novel context in this story. Like, if you're reading interviews and watching the docs. It wasn't just a phone number. No. So we'd find a new system, and you'd try those default usernames and passwords, kind of whatever they came preset as, whatever they were in the box. And roughly speaking, one out of ten machines were using those default uh, usernames and passwords. A ratio that has probably changed. Probably not. But not by that much.
2: The uh, weakest link theory, you know? One out of ten. Once you get into one... Typically, you can find other ways to
0: get access to the other nine. So once he's in, he'd set up a phony account using one of essentially four usernames Hunter, Hedges, Jaeger, Benson. Over and over again. Hunter, Hedges, Jaeger, Benson. Some strong names. Clifford watched the names appear over and over again Hunter, Hedges, Jaeger, Benson. So he takes these four words, and he goes to someone named Maggie Morley, the lab's librarian.
3: Uh, the words he was interested in were Jaeger, and uh, Benson, and uh, Hunter, and Hedges.
0: The name Jaeger pinged for her for two reasons. First, Maggie is a Scrabble player, borderline pro level. And one time, she played Jaeger, and she landed that J on a triple word score. Damn. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she messed up that other Scrabble nerd. like. <laughs> but it also meant something else.
3: Jaeger, I also knew, was, uh, was a kind of bird which uh, uh, harassed other birds, causing them to drop the food from their beaks. Um, and it's also a German word meaning hunter.
0: Jaeger and hunter. So he's a German. Two of the usernames. As for Hedges and Benson Benson and Hedges is a smoker. He's a German smoker. We yeah. figured it out. They have two clues he has the Jaeger, which implies that he's German, and the cigarettes which implies cigarettes. And he follows this trail for a little bit. But the next big break in the story comes from a collaborator of Clifford's, this guy named Ron Vevere. And Ron Vivere worked over in IT over at a company called Telnet. And he's watching this hacker move around on the network as well. And Ron Vivere calls up Clifford and he tells him he's traced the hacker from Cliff's lab to his lab in Oakland to telephone lines at Pacific Bell's Exchange. And Bell won't agree to give them any information unless they go get a warrant. So Cliff calls up the Oakland DA and he gets a warrant, and Bell agrees to trace the number. Did you ever do any, like, phone finagly, hacky stuff? Maybe. (laughs) Back in the
2: day when servers had dial-in modems and you could literally just auto-dial until you received a computer signal. So you'd be sitting at home at night and your phone would ring and you'd pick it up and say, hello, And then you'd hear, like, a modem chirp at you. Back in the day, you used to be able just to use an auto dialer and dial blocks of numbers used by companies, used by anything. And you'd only get a ping back when you hit a server. It would hang up on everybody until it got a computer signal. And then it would pop up on the terminal and be like, here's a computer.
0: That's how that worked. So cool thing about phone tracing cool thing and i'm sure it's all automated now but i guess back in 1986 doing a phone trace involved like a technician following the call by tracing it from one phone company's towers to the next calling up technicians at those companies doing this massive cooperative like surveillance sure. dragnet operation
2: yeah you'd be tracing the copper
0: connections back and you have all these operators on the line at the same time until you've traced the call back to its original source And this big cooperative mission manages to trace the call all the way back to the East Coast, Virginia. So they've got a technician in Virginia with this information, the location of the hacker, and the address where the phone connection terminates. And they've got a search warrant. And they hand that search warrant to the technician, and she looks at it, and she says, I'm in Virginia, and this is a search warrant from California. And Clifford... Says, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> You're really leaning into this acting. <laughs> so we find Clifford having followed the hacker all the way back to Virginia at this very abrupt dead end. Because they can't execute the search warrant? They can't execute the search warrant. So they need to get the FBI. This is going on for months, by the way, and I have no idea if Clifford has, like, any other job at this lab.
2: He's just... Dedicated his life to tracking down this one person who's using 75 cents worth of extra computing power. He dedicated like six months and then
0: kind of almost three years to doing this. The economic benefits are just shining through here. He did write a book, and you did read that book. I did read that book. We're talking about it. That's true. So, yet again, Clifford goes back to watching this hacker, watching this person lurk around on this network. And they're digging around on some systems operated by the CIA. And they're looking up like CIA staff information, uh, addresses, phone numbers, like really privileged information. So Clifford calls up the CIA and the CIA flies to him, pays him a visit. And when they look over the whole thing, learn the whole story thus far. um, The story of this guy looking at their agent's information, they decide, well, this is none of our business. Because domestic surveillance apparently wasn't their prerogative. Yeah, it d- still isn't, I don't think. And they just didn't really understand, I think, what they were looking at.
2: They must not have. No. Because I feel like protecting their information should be
0: key, a key tenant of what the CIA is. You'd think, right? Yeah. And if you want good confirmation that these sort of agencies didn't really understand what they were looking at, the FBI didn't care either. This is they, 1986. They saw 75% discrepancy and decided it wasn't worth their time.
2: This is astronomers in labs. They don't, they don't
0: care about computers back then? No. So Clifford goes back to his method. He starts parsing through all that information again.
3: So I had to rely on what I knew best,
0: doing science. God loves science. And science led Clifford to Kermit.
2: Kermit. So he's a German hunting, smoking frog?
0: <laughs> Not the frog, a piece of software. <laughs> so Kermit apparently was a computer uh, file transfer protocol used back in the 1980s. And the hacker was using kermit to grab and move files around the network right and kermit would send a little packet of data and they would wait and when the hacker would get the packet the software would ping cool got that data and then the next transfer would start and clifford has this idea concerning that little window of time between when the packet is sent and when the confirmation ping comes back so he hijacks it he hijacks it brilliant man in the middle
3: if i could measure the delay time between each reply then i could calculate how far away the hacker was.
0: So Clifford runs this experiment. It's smart. He's a pretty smart guy. There's one funny thing he gets very, very wrong later in life, but this is all very, very smart.
2: <laughs> later in life, not
0: in this investigation. No, in this investigation. He messes <laughs> up something huge in his personal life. <laughs> Catastrophic. <laughs> he gets one thing wrong and he admits he gets it wrong. Anyway, Clifford runs this experiment and he watches as the hacker transfers a file and then he counts, waiting for the ping. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. I'm sure he. Using science no, to count. he counted it out. Are you actually? No. Okay. <laughs> and it takes three seconds around trip from Berkeley to wherever the hacker is and back. And moving at the speed of light across these cables, that is, fun fact, 280,000 miles away. As physics goes, the hacker was on the moon. Or he was just routing through so many networks. And at this point... Clifford figures that out. Figures out there's relay stations that the signal has to ping through that add a little bit of delay each time. So they take this different approach and he performs a new experiment. And what Clifford does is he connects from Berkeley to other systems around the country, transfers a file, and then measures those delay times. First Berkeley to LA, quarter second. Berkeley to Iowa, like three quarters of a second. California to Boston, second and a half. But none of those are anywhere close to the three second delay he's watching with this hacker. Which means the hacker is somewhere much further away
2: crossing an ocean maybe maybe smoking
0: his cigarettes in a dark mysterious room with a jagged haircut and a long trench coat because the trail ends in virginia but it can't enter virginia it had just be one stop on the way to this guy in the trench coat smoking these Benson hedges me do it so right around this time a DA in virginia gives them a warrant to find out where their original phone trace ended and it turns out that his his ping theory is correct that the hacker had just been sort of passing through, breaking into a system in Virginia as another node in this big relay to cover his tracks. Luckily for Cliff, the machine that he had infiltrated in Virginia wasn't owned by a university. It was operated by a company in Virginia called MITRE. He'd broken into MITRE and then he dialed straight back out again, which is probably where this would have ended if it wasn't for the fact that MITRE, which is in Virginia, is just miles from Langley, headquarters of the CIA, were a big client of Miter's. Suddenly, a bunch of clues kind of converge. First, the authorities finally get interested, because it's not about 75 cents. It's about a guy that they can see is mucking around in their system. Which I wonder why they cared this time, but not the first time, but that's on the CIA to answer. Second clue, Clifford's pager goes off again, and the hacker is back active on their system. So he runs up to the lab, and he runs this trace. He traces his hacker to port 14. he finds...
4: Cliff, are you sure this is the same guy? Yeah, I'm sure it's him. Okay, I've got his network address locked on, but he's coming in from somewhere strange. Like where? He's uh, coming in from outside TimeNet. He's coming in on a circuit that's owned by International Telephone Telegraph Company.
0: The hacker was coming in from abroad. West Germany. And suddenly the username makes sense. Jaeger the German word for Hunter, the delay time, three seconds. It all kind of clicks together for Clifford. The Germans. said, Germans. So Cliff calls up the German telecom that the hacker's on, and the company quickly traces the hacker back to Hanover. He's in the hacker's backyard. He's getting really, really close to this guy. Great town, Hanover. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. A little bit of telephone line trivia for Hanover back in the 1950s when hanover built a lot of their telephone infrastructure they used like old rotary switches which worked fine but it did mean that if you wanted to do a then modern trace you had to test every single one of those switches by hand which took a lot of time and time is a really big problem because at this point finding the guy was like a classic we got to keep the bad guy on the line type problem sure Tracing the call on rotary switches could take up to an hour, but the hacker was only ever passing through Clifford's system on the way to juicier military stuff on the mill net.
3: For weeks, it went on like this. Time after time, the hacker would log on for five minutes or less and
0: then disappear. There was never anything there for them on Clifford's network. So what do you think Clifford did to keep the hacker on for long enough to trace him?
2: Talk to him. That's what I'd do.
0: Yeah, he kind of did that. Kind of did Either that or I'd set up like a real juicy file transfer. Cliff's at home talking with his then-girlfriend Martha and her roommate when they come up with this idea.
4: If there isn't anything
1: he's interested on your machine now, want to not you make some up?
0: Why don't you just make some up? That's right.
2: Honeypot. Honeypot. Classic. They I can't believe they actually didn't come up with the idea of a full-blown honeypot and just have this guy dial into a isolated computer that that just kind of tracked everything he did, but... Maybe that's too advanced for
0: 1986. Yeah, they didn't invent the idea. Like, that term predates all this. So yeah, It's like a course. long word from espionage. But they certainly, like, came up with it on their own. Yeah. And so Clifford cooks up some files, something that this hacker is going to want to read, um, like secret government information. Ooh. And he'd write all of this dense bureaucratic nonsense, but then he would pepper in, like, terms like chemical warfare and Star Wars. <laughs> because it's 1986 and he he takes han solo (laughs) (laughs) wookie and he takes this file and he plants a trap meant to keep the hacker on his servers long enough to be able to do this rotary trace way off in germany and it works oh hi cliff is our friend on again yeah hackers on start the trace So the hacker bumps into Cliff's honeypot and he peers in and he sees all this jargon and he likes what he sees. So he pulls up a chair and he starts reading and Cliff launches the trace. The technician in Germany is checking all these rotary switches. He's testing and testing and testing and he finds it. Could you imagine the infrastructure
2: required to do this? Literally no. Like just picking up a phone and calling Germany's secret service or whoever's taking care of it in Germany. Who's then calling the telco. Who's then like just the amount of, you'd have a 20 minute delay just in phone calls.
0: Truly, did he have no other duties at this job? Because it's like a full... Anyway. The hacker's on again. So he does it. Finds the end destination where... The origin point. Exactly.
3: So we did it. Far out. Well, I'm headed home to celebrate. Celebrate with a strawberry milkshake. I think I'll have
2: a beer.
0: I think I'll have a beer. (laughs) I think I... I'm 42. I'm going to have a beer, Clifford. <laughs> it had taken Cliff six months to track the hacker to his source, and it would be another six months of like legal wrangling between the FBI and the German authorities to to get the name of the guy. Special Agent Mike Gibbons explained.
1: Well, Clifford originally traced the hackers into my backyard in Northern Virginia, but I didn't really have a lot to go on. Uh, a few weeks later, he called me and told me that the hackers were all the way over across the ocean in Germany and that he really needed some help. We thought it was a pretty serious matter when you have people from another country that are breaking into various government and military computer systems. So we opened full investigation into the matter. We met with the Germans uh, over here and tried to describe what was going on. We found we had no extradition in place, no way to bring these hackers over to American justice. Uh, but the Germans had some new laws in place and were quite willing to prosecute them over there.
0: So in January 1990, the case comes to trial. Three years after it started, Clifford finally gets uh, a look at his hackers in this small town called Sella in Germany, where he's to appear as an expert witness. Hackers, plural. Hmm. Dirk Brzezinski, Peter Carl, Marcus Hess, and Carl Cook. Brzezinski was a programmer. Carl Cook, also known as Hagbard, died a few months before the trial. Carl, a former croupier who comes up again later, and Marcus Hess, 28 years old, another programmer from Hanover, who was the kind of main actor that Clifford had been following. And it turned out that they were right. During the trial, Cliff found out that Hess smoked Benson to Hedges. It would turn out that the four men had started out as kind of this freedom of information hacker group that would meet at a bar and then muck around in networks all around the world. And there were just people who wanted to see kind of what was out there and how far into it they could get. And the trouble emerged when Carl, a former croupier, got involved with the group because Carl had contacts in the KGB. And when he told the KGB what kind of info this group of people was finding, the KGB offered to buy it. And suddenly the group is in business hacking for hire. Hmm. All three defendants were found guilty and charged two years in prison and fined $12,000 which was about a quarter of what they'd made from selling information to the KGB, and they were immediately let on, on bail. Agent Gibbons explained.
1: We were surprised with the relative ease that they broke into a lot of these computer systems. It was really not through flaws in the computers. It was because some of the computer systems left their front door wide open. Uh, We don't feel this is really a sudden breakdown of security. People have been breaking into institutions for a number of years and hacking, as it's called. But uh, what we're having now is that... The computers are used uh, so much in the everyday way of every business and every government agency that now we have a lot of sensitive information on these computers. And now it's a much more serious matter for someone to break into one of these uh, institutions and steal the information or alter it.
0: With just a telephone line and a home computer you could break into just about anything. So Clifford finds himself at the end of this mystery in a bar in Hanover, the Kaiser, near where Marcus Hess had lived, sitting opposite a friend of Hess's, a member of their group, a guy named Volker Ula.
4: So we only wanted to hack for freedom of information and, and showing co- holes in computers. Then we all realized that this had, had happened, that no one could believe. No one of us could believe that this had happened. Did you know Marcus Hess at the time? Were you- yes, I, I knew him very well, but but uh, I, no one of us knew that, that he, they were perhaps selling information. Did he suspect that I had followed him? Did he no, know? He, he didn't suspect. Marcus said, oh, I'm caught. I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid. There must be a freak on the other side who who, who traced me. I can't believe that <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I have, yeah. have, such a lo- have done such a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not a computer freak. You just seem to just be one. <laughs> no, no, no,
2: no, no. So that's a compliment if you didn't know. A little bit. A freak, uh, P-H-R-E-A-K, was a person that was competent in telephone hacking. So not just hacking computers, but actually, you know, breaking into telephone systems and tracing and getting free connections and things like that. So freaking was a totally separate set of, subset of hacking that was just telephone and PBX related. It sounds like Volker Ulan knew that and Clifford Stoll didn't. It sounds like that, probably because Clifford
0: Stoll wasn't a part of that world. So Volker had been staring down the barrel of this totally different mystery. What had happened to the fourth hacker, Hagbard? When they'd first met, he was this nice, affable guy. But almost in tandem with their journey from a group of freedom of information hackers to hackers for hire selling the KGB, he'd kind of devolved as well. Volker told Clifford that Haggard had gotten more depressed, that he was doing more drugs. And while all of that kind of fed into the official story of how he died, suicide, it didn't convince Volker. Hagbard died in 1989, shortly after he'd been charged with espionage.
4: He drove away from Hanover to Salah city about 50 kilometers from Hanover and he had to do a job there in Celle and he never came back from this job and I heard in newspapers a few days later that he was found in a forest near the city and he was burned they said that he burned himself
0: a jäger is a little bird that feeds by chasing after other birds until they drop whatever they'd already caught. And Marcus Hess used it as a code name because the word meant hunter in Germany. And I think that if Clifford had used it as his username, it would have applied just as well. Clifford still ended up having like a really full career after all this. He wrote Cuckoo's Egg. He's written a bunch of different books. He's a kind of a beloved figure, I think, sure. in, in the cybersecurity community. He also famously predicted that internet commerce wasn't going to ever be a thing. Oh, so that's the that's the drop? <laughs> yeah, that's the drop. And he does admit it. He's like, well, I know I'm not that smart because I got that very, very wrong. I wonder if Bezos calls him like once a year just to be like, hey, man. I just like text him a winky emoji every single morning he wakes up. Yeah, with his current bank balance. <laughs> and 30 years later, a lot has changed. I think I would imagine that rarely does cyber forensics involve stealing 50 printers. Um, but some things haven't. Information is still worth a lot of money to people valuable things are often left unlocked and a lot of people still use the default password the motivations are the same
2: too like a lot of people get into cybersecurity because it's a puzzle people that like puzzles tend to like cybersecurity because it's just a big challenging puzzle. Yeah, a lot of the techniques are the same. Routing through other computers, jumping through networks, things like that. Now we use, you know, proxies and dark webs and things like that, but a lot of the same is same is true today.
3: So we did it. Far out. Well, I'm headed home to celebrate. Celebrate with a strawberry milkshake.
2: I think I'll have a beer.
0: If you want to check out our main source for this episode, you can find it on YouTube. It's the 1990 PBS documentary, The KGB, The Computer, and Me. Clifford Stoll is a really likable storyteller and a hell of a sleuth. It is definitely worth a watch. Big shout out to our new patrons on Patreon, Leif Mathis and Jimmy Cochran. Your support means the world to us. You can support the show at patreon.com slash hackedpodcast or follow us on Twitter at hackedpodcast. Until the next one, thanks for listening.